Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, and this week I am joined with author and actor Patrick Kilpatrick. Patrick has a very unique story from growing up in the New England area, being indirectly introduced to the world of acting, uh, transitioning from theater to film. He also describes uh, some techniques he's learned when it comes to memorizing lines, why transitioning from theater to film is much easier than the vice versa method, um, and he's primarily known for playing villains throughout his career, so he goes in-depth about the process of preparing to play a villain, uh, the different types of villains in cinema, and he also recaps uh, how he narrowly survived a car crash as a teenager and how he put himself through rehab, which is a really insane story. And he also discusses his book, Dying for Living, Sins and Confessions of a Hollywood Villain and Libertine Patriot. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Patrick Kilpatrick. Here tonight with my very special guest this week, actor Mr. Patrick Kilpatrick. How are you tonight, sir? I'm great. Thank you, Derek. I'm really happy to be talking to you. No, absolutely. And, you know, uh, your your agent, Lori, reached out to me and she's helped me get uh, a few other guests uh, on my show really over the last year or so. And, you know, she reached out, asked if I'd be interested in having you on, looked at your resume and was just blown away by it. So I'm I'm really happy to have you here on the show to talk with you about your career. Well, that's kind of you. And Lori's uh, I've known her for a long time. She's um, she's a real go getter. Oh, for sure. No, she she's always been on top of things, making sure, you know, that I've got all the right information that I need. You know, she sent me website links, your headshot, bio, all that stuff. So really, really good stuff. But to, to kind of k- kick things off, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about yourself personally. Like, Where where did you grow up? Um, I grew up uh, between Virginia and Connecticut. I was born in Virginia uh, at an early age. Dad and my father moved us to um, Connecticut, and but I would go back periodically. Like I went to a prep school in Virginia, and I went to the universe, University of Richmond, and I went to another prep school in Connecticut. So I was back and forth between New England, egalitarian uh, American Revolution, Connecticut, and the capital of representative democracy in Virginia and, and the Confederacy and all of that. So it was a, a kind of a Eastern seaboard American mix. What was it like growing up around, you know, that area? Because there's so much history behind it with, you know, the, with it being around the area of where the country was founded and everything. So what, what was it like being around all that historical significance growing up? Well, very much of it, you know, my father was a World War II um, decorated um, hero. He was an underwater demolition team guy and um, fought in North Africa and Sicily and uh, almost every island in the Pacific. And so I was reared in that post-war boomer period where American preeminence in the world was self-evident and it was it was pretty remarkable. In some ways, I was viewed as a rebel in uh, New England and a Yankee in Virginia, um, but very steeped in the traditions of the country. And one of the reasons I address that in the book is to show that patriotism and devotion to America was very much part of my family and part of the growing up. You know, Connecticut's a very egalitarian melting pot and uh virginia's got everything that it has going on with it everything from the civil war and uh it was pretty immersive as far as uh, american history goes oh i'm sure and uh, one of my best friends he has a lot of family in virginia and he he grew up there but he you know moved here a couple of years ago and still goes back to visit family every now and then and he said it's he said it's really cool seeing all that stuff, you know, and he's he's a big history buff as well. So that's that's like a being a kid in the candy store for him. Yeah, I um I got a degree from University of Richmond in English and history. Was always fascinated by uh history and particularly American history, although uh, 
I studied some world history and all of that. And it, it, it makes you realize how remarkable this country is in a lot of ways. I think one of the things I address in the book is this country is continually in a conversation, an evolution um, about where we're going because there's never really been a place like it on the planet. And, um, and we're at a very, very volatile and conversational point in our history right now. You know, uh, he, talking about Virginia, you know, the whole discussion of the American, the um, Confederate flag coming down from state houses and now the the monuments uh, of Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart and Stonewall Jackson. Um, all of that is part of the American conversation. And it's um, it's an interesting time. And I think we all need to listen to each other. No, I, I totally agree with that. It, it's uh, it's very interesting, like you said, for for sure. But um, you know, you, you mentioned you know you went to you went to college. Um, but where in that time did you, I guess, were introduced to the possibility of getting into acting? I never thought about that. Certainly during college, all I you know, my parents wouldn't allow me to watch too much television. I mean, I saw stuff like I Love Lucy and the untouchables and some of those seminal foundational television shows, but not a lot. Mostly we were encouraged to read and I read a book a day. My mother had some mental illness that we dealt with. And so that was a, a cheap way of escape. Um, I read a book a day for years, sometimes more. So I, my early heroes were all, always either literary characters or writers. And so I went to New York after university, graduating from the University of Richmond, and um, quickly got a job as an advertising writer and a journalist at magazines, and was very, very privileged to do stuff like relaunch Life magazine and to do, if a magazine needed a campaign for itself, I would create those and um, do journalism on topics I loved uh, at that time. So it was very much uh, a writing situation, um, to some extent performing because I would like go and play rugby and then write an article on it uh, for a magazine or ride motorcycles and do an article for Cycle magazine and uh, advertising for Cycle. So I was doing a lot of physical things that I really love to do and writing about them. So uh, I never gave a thought to acting um, until I was working at Time Inc. And I'd helped uh, to launch Life Magazine as a monthly again. And uh, I was working for Interview Magazine and those places and Rolling Stone. And I decided that uh, uh, real writers had to write novels. So I took a sabbatical from writing uh, for magazines for a while um, and split a house with an actor who was becoming a huge Broadway um, force. Uh, at one time, John Tillinger had three Broadway hits going and one on the West End of London. And so uh, to balance the books, I became his assistant uh, on a lot of plays. And so uh, inspired by that environment, I was hanging around with Richard Dreyfus and Blythe Banner and Frank Langella and wow. Christopher Christopher Reeves and Jeff Daniels and Irene Wirth and Stockard Channing and Gwyneth Paltrow when she was 12 years old. And so I became inspired by this whole process, particularly at the Williamstown Theater Festival, where I found myself as an assistant director. And so I wrote a play. And instead of a novel, the play got produced. And then I was asked to join theater companies and uh, as a, the, the play selector, if you would, the, what they call the literary manager. And then I just started acting and it kind of took off and it was sort of meant to be destiny. Um, and it's been sort of writing and acting for me ever since. So you did acting in theater before you got into acting for film? Oh, yeah. Um, I was very fortunate to work um, 
on and off Broadway and uh, regional theater. And I was privileged when I got to Los Angeles to work at the Los Angeles Theater Center, which people may not realize, but was a huge theatrical venue. When I got here, they had like 29 plays running. Um, L.A. is not a particularly theater town, a particular theater town. It's more of a film and television thing. And I was doing a lot of film and television by then anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the focus became film and television. I haven't done theater for a while, but I did a whole bunch with some extraordinary people. I worked with Academy Award winning director Tony Richardson and people like John Goodman and Sir Lawrence Olivier's son, Richard, and I was really blessed. I, I, I kind of fell into a world of excellence in theater, and that really stood me in good stead. You know, I mentor a lot of young people, and I talk about this in the book, but um, uh, literally hundreds of them. I run a mentorship program called uh, for Entertainment Warriors, and a lot of young actors and stuff really don't know where to go to find excellence. Um, that's easier easier found if you go to USC or UCLA or Juilliard or Yale, but if you're sort of on the street as it were, you don't really know where excellence goes. And so many things are designed just to strip young actors and entertainment uh, people of money rather than providing them the guidance they really need to succeed and to quickly work. Well, and that's what I tell people too, that, you know, cause we, we have a, a pretty decent, you know, local film community here in Pensacola and anyone who asked me for advice, I, the first thing I tell them is, you know, besides figuring out exactly what it is you want to do is to find someone who can help you, whether it's develop a skill or write your story, something like that. Cause I've, when this airs, it will have already happened, but in December I'm directing my very first short film. So I've got, Oh, thank you. Um, I've got a friend of mine who went to a film school in the University of Central Florida in Orlando, and he's been a huge help with, you know, introducing me to that whole process. So I, I think it's cool that you're doing that. Well, you know, I think most people, um, I work, um, I kind of by evolution, I've worked with, um, some foreign governments because I would go around the world looking for locations um, and investment on different film projects. And, it, and you always end up working uh, to some extent with either the local government or the local educational institutions. So um, we uh, have done a bunch of work in Fiji and Brazil and even Nigeria um, and so, and, and along those lines, I would pull people that I've worked with as production in heads in films like Minority Report or Eraser or Replacement Killers. And all of those people, as successful as they are and earning 10 grand a week or whatever, at some point in their lives, they all want to give back. And they, they do want to teach and pass along uh, what they know. And that's a really good good place to get to sometime in your career. So um, I, I love the fact of being able to send young people out with the skill set and the integrity that they need, not only to create, but to make a good economic business out of it, rather than being taken to the cleaners by the circumstances that they might find themselves in wandering in the wilderness. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I think most people who are adept at what they do sooner or later want to pass that information along to generations that are to come. No, absolutely. Something I'm curious about, since you have experience in acting in both theater and film, what's the prep process like, like comparing the two? Because, you know, with, with film, if you like slip up on a line or you forget something you can just ask you know whoever's holding the script for your line but with when you're acting on stage you're doing the whole thing in front of a live audience so what's the process like you know comparing the two well starting in theater is actually a great boon 
uh, a great benefit, competitive benefit, because the memorization challenges of theater are so significantly more challenging than film and television. Um, if you have to learn a full play, you know, about 40 pages of dialogue or monologue or whatever it is for a play, and you have to do that in three days, um, then the t- memorization challenges of te- film and television become significantly less. Um, one of the things we teach is how to how to do all that as swiftly as possible. Um, I was very blessed, even though memorization was very difficult in the very beginning. It's it, for me, it became like a muscle at the gym. The more you worked on it, the the bigger and and more adept it became. So I almost got to a point of having a photographic memory and that's a great competitive advantage. I would say stage, you know, stage is so rigorous um, that, and by the way, a lot of film and television is very vigorous. I did a film this weekend and, you know, it was 14 hours a day and it was getting up at five in the morning and you're, you're jamming. Um, But theater night after night and two times on Wednesday and two times on Saturday and Sunday, uh, that's pretty rigorous discipline. So if you can achieve that and also achieve that brilliance of performance before opening night, because that's when all the reviewers come, Mm -hmm. uh, then you're pretty well set up for film and television. Um, The game goes to the swift and the the excellent. I uh, there are vocal challenges in a theater that one doesn't have in a lot of places in film and television. But I really think a good actor can adapt to any of those places. I just think at some point, a brilliant actor is going to have to carry that expertise into a theater sooner or later. Um, I haven't done a lot of theater in recent years, mostly because my downtime is spent uh, writing and raising money for films and consulting on films or acting in films. So um, uh, there are many actors who just desperately have to have that, that interrelationship between a live audience and um, uh, themselves. And that's a great, great thing. You know, one of the reasons a guy like Nick Nolte is such a great actor is he started out in a hundred theaters that are within 200 miles of Chicago. So you're learning under such a tight and demanding crucible that theater is a really great uh, proving ground for film and television. Film and television is a different animal, but it's nothing that you can't get to pretty quickly. I mean, film acting is so small uh, often um, that that's another sort of elegant um, exercise that one has to learn. you, you take a, one of the best pieces of film acting I ever saw was Liam Neeson and Mickey Rourke in uh, Prayer for the Dying. And they're both IRA uh, hitmen. And Liam Neeson decides he wants out. So Mickey Rourke is sent to kill him and, uh, in a park. Well, uh, he points the gun at Liam Neeson. And Liam Neeson, uh, actually, it may be reversed. Mickey Rourke may be uh, leaving i can't remember but one of them is leaving and he leaves and liam neeson what he does is he slowly shuts his eyes um and a lesser actor would have yelled or gotten angry or something like that and it was very demonstrative of great film acting um that's not the kind of thing you could pull off on a stage you know, because you're directing your actions to, you know, a hundred yards away. So um, therein lies the difference. But good actors can do all of them. It just the whole process has always been impressive to me, you know, from the few stage plays that I've seen. It just blows my mind that people have to memorize that amount of dialogue. Like it's, it's just mind blowing to me. So it's cool to hear the process behind it. Well, there are tricks to it. Um, uh, I teach a technique called the three-time rule. Um, I don't know if your audience is interested in that, but um, there are ways to learn how to do that more rapidly. The other thing is 
if you remember that you are in a, a communication, a dialogue with another human being, then you're not going to mess up your lines very well because you're conveying a concept to the other uh, person in the scene with you or persons. You know, you, you, you were talking about what happens if somebody makes a mistake or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mistakes, mistakes get made in the theater. And uh, I've seen, we, once we did a play, we chopped off 15 minutes of it by accident. Uh, and it was, people would come up and go, wow, that was wonderful. But boy, it was short. Um, <laughs> but you just, you just roll with it. And if you're, if you're dealing in concepts rather than just waiting to say your line, then you're communicating a concept and you're going to be communicating that it's pretty hard to screw up communicating a concept. Um, it's much easier to, uh, to screw up merely saying a line. Um, I can read lines in 10 minutes after I read it. I know the concepts that I'm conveying to the other person. So um, night after night, yeah, you learn to roll with it and make mistakes. You get so adept at it that you're sometimes goofing around at the same time with the people who are in the wings watching you because, you know, um, Olivier supposedly could tell a dirty joke on the wings and then walk out and do Hamlet, (laughs) you know? So, um, and I have, I have some experience with doing that, you know, you're, you're, blowing kisses to people on the wings while you're in the middle of this big dramatic deal. Um, so it's a great proving ground. Oh, for sure. And it, it's kind of that old rule. And the same goes with if you're working behind the scenes and, you know, a live TV production, as long as the audience doesn't know that there's a screw up, then everything's okay. No. And, and, and uh, you, you remind me of, uh, of something that's very, very true. Everybody makes mistakes, and often the audience does know it. But how you recover from the mistake uh, completely can charm and captivate an audience. That's true Um, as well. They watch you, and they see what you've done, and you you win their hearts that way. So I've seen some great people really screw up and they did it with such a plume like Peter O'Toole or, or um, Irene Wirth or Stockard Channing. And, you know, by the end of the few seconds, the audience is completely in their back pocket. That's fantastic. Kind of moving on into your, your film career, you know, you've acted alongside, you know, several Pretty notable names like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Steven Seagal, Tom Cruise. Um, a lot of your roles, you've played a villain or a bad guy. And ever since I was a kid, you know, watching movies, whether they be Disney or any live action movies, I've always been more fascinated with the villain story. You know, what motivates them to be the way they are? What is it like? you know, playing a villain and getting yourself into that mindset? Well, there are many, many different kinds of villainy uh, and evil. Um, if you have read a book called The Road Less Traveled in classical Christian sense, evil is anybody who's trying to block the dreams of another person for no reason. Um, cinema villainy is, is sometimes often very different from from real life villainy. Um, uh, when I'm preparing a part, um, you, I'll read as much research as I possibly can. And uh, sometimes I'll take a look at what the world of cinema is doing vis-a-vis bad guys, because you want to bring something new artistically to the, to the mountain, if you will. Um, and then I'll assemble that. Doing the research is very different from actually doing it because you have to act it. You're not spouting research. Um, you know, broad strokes, most people who are bad have been abused themselves at some time in their life. Um, 
I, I don't think that's universal, but it's a large percentage of them. Um, then I'll try to add some. You're living in the moment, but you're also adding some perhaps arousing uh, behavior. Um, I think if you can make people be aroused and actually attracted to a bad person at the same time, that can be really interesting. Um, sometimes evil is just really banal and boring. Um, that doesn't often work in cinema villainy, but it can be occasionally like um, Robert Duvall did a movie called Citizen X, which is about a mass serial killer in the Soviet Union. The guy was really boring as hell. Um, and to play that is a really interesting challenge. Um, each part is very, very different. Um, even though I've been certainly typecast in villains a lot in my career, they're all such rich, different people that um, I've really enjoyed playing it. Um, you know, recently I, uh, I, I'm doing, I'm actually filming a movie called Catalyst, where I play a pedophile, a pedophile priest. And what could be more reviled than that? Um, what's interesting when you read the research about pedophiles is very interestingly, not the pedophile behavior itself, but what motivates them to become these people is very similar, uncomfortably similar to things that are connected to all of our flaws, like, um, you know, isolation when they're young, um, wanting some connection with another human being. Um, clearly, it's selfish and it's terrible behavior, but it's not so different, the origins of it, from, say, drinking or drug use or uh, promiscuity or something like that. It, you, these things usually come out of lack of nurturing and uh, isolation, poor parental connection. Um, now, none of that is to mitigate or excuse the behavior because at some point you're responsible for your behavior. But um, it's interesting that that is at the source of a, a, a lot of aberrant behavior. Um, cinema villainy, uh, media villainy is, uh, is art and it's drama and it's fun and it's um it's in some ways it's not akin to real villainy right you making the analogies of you know well maybe this person wanted just the company of another human being like basically having these flaws that happen you know in their lives it's interesting when you have a hero and a villain who have similar things happen but then one chooses to use that as motivation for good and the other, you know, chooses to become evil or just almost naturally becomes evil. I've always just found their stories, I guess, a little, as you compared, more layered than than a hero's story. And it's to, to me, the best villains have always been the ones who, in their mind, truly believe that what they're doing, like, say, if it's, you know, they're trying to accomplish a certain goal that they truly believe whatever they're doing is right because in their mind they're doing it for a greater good. Not excusing their behavior, but it's just fascinating to watch on screen. Yeah, I don't I don't know that uh pedophilic priests That's that's very that, true. That that's that's very you know, what, true. What they're doing are <laughs> are um for a greater good is to some they're succumbing to uh, their ab aberrant behavior. I think you're you're talking about a Machiavellian leader who who may uh, do something that is inappropriate. And I think to some extent, leadership sometimes does, or even human condition exists in. Look, if you look at the number of rules that are and laws that are associated with modern life. I mean, if you were to follow every single law and every single rule of modern life, you'd probably go insane. All of us are every day 
violating traffic laws, um, you know, jaywalking, whatever it is. Um, so there's sort of a healthy anti-authoritarian impulse uh, and independence in our spirits. But there's also, uh, yeah, you can fall prey to a lot of things. I think uh, if, if somebody's life, if we're all working really hard and we're all challenged. And it's the person who chooses to think that they are entitled to do all these other things because they're working hard and challenged that is really going down a dark path. Um, I, uh, that's a little different from somebody who says maybe I've got to bomb Cambodia to try and end the Vietnam War um, illegally. I mean, let's face it, all governments are doing illegal things left, right, and center. And I'm not so sure we don't want them to, because if, if you're not, the other side is as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're operating in a void. I'm, I'm sure the CIA is doing stuff that is, in fact, I know they are. They're doing crazy stuff. But geopolitically, all these governments are doing this stuff. How you juxtaposition that between your personal reality and the, the concept of noble behavior, I don't know. It's every person's own decision um, on a lot of levels. To some extent, it comes down to do you get caught? That's very true. With, you know, you mentioning you playing, you know, a pedophile in this upcoming movie that you have. What is the prep like? Because that's a pretty, you know, as soon as you hear the word pedophile, you almost kind of cringe at it a little bit because everybody knows what that word means. And you just think of what it is and it just, you know, it makes you cringe with, you know, yeah, neg- with negativity. I, I don't really think there's a character uh, who's subject to more reviling uh, reaction by others. Um, What's the prep been like uh, for that as compared to playing like a mercenary? Well, the prep was to really read a lot of research about it. Um, uh, The director of that picture, Chris Volkins, uh, provided a a very um, structured environment for us to film in and and then to improv within that very um, prepared structure. So um, I read the stuff and I came up with little bits and bobs that came out of the research. And the other thing is, and this is something that is somewhat a mystery to me, but it's really kind of wonderful, the idea of you have to open yourself up and allow, I call it the divine, um, but allow the universe to sort of pass through you. I mean, I was doing a scene as a border patrol agent uh, day before yesterday, and um, I I arrest this woman who's purportedly carrying out miracles. Um, And I began to do the scene with her and uh, where I release her um, uh, against all, I'm kind of destroying my career as a border guard guy because they're coming to get her because she's like a Christ-like figure and uh, I'm, I fear that they're going to kill her and all this other stuff because she's causing all this disruption at the border. But uh, so I, I release her and I began to cry, you know, while I, I was releasing her. And it worked, but, I, you know, it, it would be a mistake to say that I control that. I'm really just putting myself in a situation where um I say the divine or whatever's supposed to happen passes through there. I really do follow acting somewhat as an object of faith because um, I'll like, I'll lose weight because I get bronchitis and then I'm playing a quivering bomber of of the space station, or I'll suddenly start pumping iron inexplicably and I'm playing a damaged football coach. Uh, You know, the, the universe, I think if we're on the path that we're supposed to be doing, um, kind of puts us in the environment that we're supposed to, uh, 
I, I, we're supposed to function. Um, you know, I'll grow a mustache and I'm playing a, a Western. I don't calculatedly. My girlfriend, fiance, calls it manifesting. You kind of manifest the universe. Somehow, I think we're all connected to the universe and to the other dimensions, if you will, um, in a manner that we don't quite understand. Um, I just do the background work, do the memorization, do the, I call it the landscaping, what's going on in the scene. And then I, I just wing it, throw it up, throw the cards up in the air and let the, let the energy pass through you. Um, and it, 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 it hits, you know, Olivier said, sometimes God whispers in our ear. That's an awesome way to look at it, for sure. Um, before we get into some of your current stuff, I, I did want to backtrack a little bit. Uh, when I was reading uh, your bio on your IMDb page, I did want to ask you about, uh, it says here that you nearly died in a car crash when you were a teenager, and you rehabbed yourself, uh, and you largely did have done most of your own stunts. Uh, what exactly happened in the car crash, and what did you do for rehab? Well, uh, in those days, I, growing up in Connecticut, there was a tragic situation that exists. The drinking age in New York State was 18, and the drinking age in Connecticut was 21. So you had a lot of Connecticut kids every Friday and Saturday night, and sometimes other nights, driving at high speed to New York, picking up alcohol, and then driving at high speed back. Um, I was a football player and athlete, and uh, the, the captain of my football team asked me if I wanted to run up to the line, that's what it was called, to pick up his girlfriend. And I was kind of infatuated with his girlfriend, and so I jumped in the car. And I was also flattered that the captain of the football team would want to be in my company. I didn't realize that he was drunk. And so we went up to the line. He went in the bar for a while. I stayed in the car. He came back and uh, we were driving back and I fell asleep and I woke up and I was in this horrific car crash and I broke my back uh, severely, shattered a vertebra and they didn't think I would ever walk again. Um, but I, I, knew, uh, I was lucky and I was in, superb shape from athletics and so um i made it out and when you say what did you do to rehab he didn't have rehab then um it was basically me and two other football players in the university of richmond gym pumping iron so i i kind of put myself back together um here's where that negative event was actually a blessing um I couldn't play sports for a long time. And so I became a writer and I picked up on massage and chiropractory and healing modalities of exercise. So that 10 years later, when I finally started acting, I had the mind of a writer and the body of an athlete again, and the ability to put myself back together very, very quickly, which has stood me in good stead doing all that combat and stunt stuff as an actor in all these action movies. So I, um, I was very blessed that I had this quote unquote negative cataclysmic event because it gave me the skill set I needed to go forward to do what I needed in life. And frankly, that's what I think quote unquote negative events are there. I call them God's pivots. Um, they're just, you're being pivoted, uh, and it's um, how you react to that event. I, I know somebody who had the same injury that I did, and they became a wastrel. Um, I mean, I deal with a lot of veterans, and guys lose their arms, and six months later, they go back to combat with the prostheses. Uh, other guys fall into depression, and, you know, it takes them a long time to come out, Um it's, it depends on your reaction. Uh, it, uh, I think it, it, one of the chief things that people can get out of the book is that if you 
are facing some challenge, it's because the universe wants you to develop a skill set to surmount that challenge. Um, so, I mean, I, another example, you know, 2001 after 9-11, there was no acting work. I had a family. I had to earn money. I went around the world going to Star Trek conventions and um, cultural conventions and signing autographs. And I learned how to public speak in front of hundreds of people. So a negative event, no work, forced me to develop other skills. Um, so the, the accident had a profound effect on me. Um, but I got the skills I needed to do all those stunts and to keep acting pristine day after day and night after night of long, long hours. If you act particularly that physically, you can get really stiff and that's when people get hurt. So by deploying chiropractory and massage and those things regularly, you can keep the work pristine and loose and, you know, the universe becomes a lot easier. You know, I actually think count myself lucky because I had that cataclysmic accident. Some people, I meet people who haven't had that. They think that those things are luxuries. They're not luxuries. They're tools that help us to be more productive and to be more aligned with the universe as we're going through. It's kind of like that. I heard this saying a couple of years ago, and I, I really think it's true. It's life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. So say you had your, car, think, you had your car accident, but then through that, through the rehab, you learned other things that you've carried with you, you know, throughout your life. So I, I think that's awesome. No question. I just think that's the way the universe is. And uh, some people don't. And so I think they manifest a different kind of energy. Um, you know, look, it's just on an audition level. Um, even I don't care who you are, Brad Pitt, you're probably going to have to audition sometimes. And uh, I think James Franco and Leonardo DiCaprio both auditioned for Christopher Nolan for Inception. It's not because Christopher Nolan didn't think James Franco and Leonardo DiCaprio couldn't act. It's because James, um, uh, Christopher Nolan is learning how to mine the material so that when he gets on the set and they're spending $300,000 a day, he knows how to get all the values out of the material. So um, I think you're always going to have to audition. Well, sometimes you have to audition so fast and hard that you're exhausted. Well, there's no good going into an audition in that state, although sometimes that works. But um, if you manage to get a massage or a chiropractic or on a workout in or something, just before all of that, you can clear out all that fatigue and the audition is going to go much, much better. Absolutely. That said, sometimes we do our best work when we're exhausted. So I don't have all the answers. <laughs> no, that that's a good point too. You know, you've mentioned your book a couple of times. Uh, you recently wrote a book, uh, "Dying for Living: Sins and Confessions of a Hollywood Villain and Libertine Patriot." Uh, what what motivated you to write this, and what is it about? Well, I was motivated by a bunch of things. Number one, um, I wanted, it sounds silly, but people would get together and we'd tell stories, and I found I always had a story that topped their story, and I began to feel really badly because uh, I didn't want to tell stories and diminish others in the telling. Um, so I said, I've got to have a place to put all these stories. Um, and then I, I became engaged to this lovely woman, and I wanted to entertain her, and so I began writing stories and sending them to her uh, at least one a week, and I ended up with a draft. And then, as I said, the, well, I don't know if I told you, that was a conversation with someone else, but a big-time agent, um, uh, I was put in contact with them, and they they liked the idea, and so the book uh, was was put together. But I put it together uh, for a lot of reasons. One, entertaining girlfriend. Two, telling stories. I knew I had, I had had a, a 
a unique upbringing of, of great privilege, money, but also because of my mother's mental illness, a lot of volat volatility and uh, even homicidal um, abuse. Um, uh, at the same time, my father was such an extraordinary accomplished man. Um, I knew the historical things we talked about were interesting from where I had come from. And then I'd had this life that embraced uh, the, probably the greatest production and in front and behind the camera talent of the last 30 years. And uh, everybody from Sean Connery to Tom Cruise and uh, Naomi Watts and everything else. And I'd spent uh, quote unquote intimate time with them. And, and uh, I knew it was a good story. So I ended up with a book that was 540 pages, which was too long for one book. So we divided it into two volumes. Um, the first one came out October 1st, and the second one comes out January. Um, there's show business stuff throughout both of them, because I figured uh, people were mostly intrigued by all of that. But again, I thought my upbringing was kind of unique. Um, uh, so uh, hence, the rest of it is in the telling. Um, I think it's uh, alternatingly very, very funny. It's a very swift and wild ride. And um, I try to be as ruthlessly loving with others as I am with myself. And, you know, the crazies are make it all very interesting. And I've had my fair share of crazy people <laughs> in my life. And so um, it's on where, and a lot of it is absurdity now how decisions get made in Hollywood how you've asked a lot of questions about the preparation of acting. All of that is in the books and hopefully that'll be uh, of value to people who are interested in that. I think I was after a bunch of other things. I also find the politics of Hollywood to be extraordinarily interesting and somewhat variant to my own because I come from this place of admiration for the American experiment. And, and uh, so I, I wanted to get that out um, as we were going along. So, uh, you know, if I think the book is kind of like a centipede. It's got a lot of legs. For sure. And I, I, I very much look forward to reading it. You know, I, I do plan on getting a copy uh, here pretty soon because it, it sounds like, you know, you've got so many great stories, you know, and they involve some really cool people, but just even your story in general is, is fascinating as well. Well, thanks a lot. I, uh, um, writing is something I've been doing for a long, long time, and it's been a great boon to my acting career. Uh, when we teach young actors um, to become entertainment warriors, they're learning how to act, write, direct, audition, produce, um, because it's really a cross-disciplinary kind of a thing. So uh, writing um, writing comes not easy for me, but I was a professional writer, so it's swift, and it's, um, I, I know I was very blessed in New York to learn rhythm, and, and uh, once again, to be lucky enough to be presented with the excellence of people, both photographically and uh, writing wise, you know, um, these people like Spielberg and Chuck Russell and Antoine Fuqua and all the guys from Time Inc, uh, Henry Luce and, and, uh, uh Andre Cortez photographically and, um, Eugene Smith, they all have some, I always tell young people, you want to become brilliant at something, commune with the masters. And that doesn't cost a dime. All you have to do to, if you want to become a brilliant filmmaker is, Watch how masters do it. Um, uh, if you want to become a really good writer, visit the masters, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Moliere and all those great guys and women. No, absolutely. So, absolutely. A couple of quick questions before we get out of here. Uh, do you have any other uh, upcoming work that you'd like to plug? Well, there's volume two is coming out, as I say, that's called uh, Dying for Living, um, Wasted Talent in the Valley of Tobacco. <laughs> um, and then um, 
Catalyst is coming out. By the way, you mentioned Pensacola. You know, I did. I just uh, I did Blackwater with Jean Claude Van Damme uh, down in Mobile and was in Pensacola. What a great town that is! Oh, well, thank uh, you. The air, the uh, the uh, the Naval Air Museum, um, and uh, there's a tremendous restaurant. Have you been to Jackson Steakhouse? Oh yeah. Um, their their steaks that. are delicious. I don't, think, I don't think they have the pumpkin margarita anymore, but. Um, it's that pumpkin-infused margarita. but And also the battleship USS Alabama. Uh, that's well worth visiting. But we filmed Blackwater down there on the Alabama. And the uh, I can't remember the name of the submarine that's right there. Um, World War II submarine. But um, really beautiful area with those beaches and the, the Gulf Shore and all. Um, so... Uh, Blackwater is on DirecTV. Um, uh, you know, the films like Assassin X, I got the People's Choice Award for that, and that's still uh, uh, running around. And um, Catalyst and the book, and I hope people like it. We're on a national book tour right now, so we've got signings all over the place. They, people should go to patrickkilpatrick.com to uh, keep uh, abreast of the events. And they can get the books on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. And also there's a link where you can get autographed copies direct from me if, uh, if you can't get to a signing. So um, I, I, I hope people like it, and I think they will very much. Fantastic. Well, Patrick, it was really nice uh, having you on the show. Loved hearing your story. Uh, look forward to reading your book, and I'll have to find one of those pumpkin margaritas to go along with reading the book. Thank you, Derek. I'll see you soon. I hope to talk to you when Volume 2 comes out. Thanks again to Patrick Kilpatrick for joining the show. That was an amazing story. Uh, hopefully any aspiring actor or actress out there uh, learned a lot from this really awesome discussion from someone who's been in the industry for a long time. Be sure to check out his website, patrickkilpatrick.com. I can't wait to read his book, Dying for Living. Such great stories. Next week, I'll be talking with filmmakers Mark and Ren Morrison about their mockumentaries, Damn It Jim, I'm Only a Documentary, which is a Star Trek mockumentary, and the Florida Bush League Wrestling Movie. Uh, really fun discussion. Hopefully you guys come back next week and check out that really fun episode. But until then, you could check out past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can follow me on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And as always, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which is available on Apple Music, Spotify, and Google Music. So that does it for this week's show. Be sure to come back next week for my fun chat with Mark and Ren Morrison. Mm-hmm.